Chapter 10 of The Lone Wolf. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adina Owen. The Lone Wolf by Louis Joseph Vance. Turnabout. The thought of Lanyard's pocket flash lamp offering itself immediately its wide circle of light enveloped his late antagonist that one was resting on a shoulder legs uncouthly asprawl quite without movement of any perceptible sort his face more than half turned to the floor and masked into the bargain incredulously lanyard stirred the body with a foot holding his weapon poised as though half expecting it to quicken with instant and violent action but it responded in no way. With a nod of satisfaction, he shifted the light until it marked down the nearest electric bulb, which proved, in line with his inference, to have been extinguished by the socket key, while the heat of its bulb indicated that the current had been shut off only an instant before his entrance. The light full up, he went back to the thug, knelt, and, lifting the body, turned it upon its back. Recognition immediately rewarded this maneuver. The masked face, upturned to the glare, was that of the American, who had made a fourth in the concert of the pack. Mr. Smith. Quickly unlatching the mask, Lanyard removed it, but the countenance thus exposed told little more than he knew. He could have sworn he had never seen it before. Nonetheless, something in its evil cast persistently troubled his memory, with the same provoking and baffling effect that had attended their first encounter. Already the American was struggling towards consciousness. His lips and eyelids twitched spasmodically. He shuddered, and his flexed muscles began to relax. In this process, something fell from between the fingers of his right hand, something small and silver-bright that caught Lanyard's eye. Picking it up, he examined with interest a small hypodermic syringe loaded to the full capacity of its glass cylinder, plunger drawn back, all ready for instant service. It was the needle of this instrument that had pricked the skin of Lanyard's neck. Beyond reasonable doubt, it contained a soporific, if not exactly a killing dose of some narcotic drug, cocaine, at a venture. So it appeared that this agent of the pack had been commissioned to put the lone wolf to sleep for an hour or two or more, perhaps not permanently, that he might be out of the way long enough for their occult purposes. He smiled grimly, fingering the hypodermic and eyeing the prostate man. Turnabout, he reflected, is said to be fair play. Well, why not? He bent forward, dug the needle into the wrist of the American, and shot the plunger home, all in a single movement so swift and deft that the drug was delivered before the pain could startle the victim from his coma. As for that, the man came too quickly enough but only to have his clearing senses met and dashed by the muzzle of a pistol stamping a cold ring upon his temple. Lie perfectly quiet, my dear Mr. Smith, Lanyard advised. Don't speak above a whisper. Give the good dope a chance. It'll only need a moment, or I'm no judge, and you're a careless highbinder. I'd like to know, however, if it's all the same to you. But already the injection was taking effect. The look of panic which had drawn the features of the American and flickered from his eyes dawning appreciation of his plight, was clouding, fading, blending into one of daze and stupor. The eyelids flickered and lay still. 
The lips moved as with urgent desire to speak, but were dumb. A long, convulsive sigh shook the American's body, and he rested with the immobility of the dead, save for the slow but steady rise and fall of his bosom. Lanyard thoughtfully reviewed these phenomena. Must cook like a mule, that dope, he reflected. Lucky it didn't get me before I guessed what was up. If I'd even suspected its strength, however, I'd have been less hasty. I could do with a little information from Mr. Mysterious Stranger here. Suddenly, conscious of a dry and burning throat, he rose and, going to the washstand, drank deep and thirstily from a water bottle, then set himself resolutely to repair the disarray of his wits and consider what was best to be done. In his abstraction, he wandered to a chair over whose back hung a light dressing gown of wine-colored silk, which, because it would pack in small compass, was in the habit of carrying with him on his travels. Lanyard had left this thrown across his bed, and he was wondering subconsciously what use the man had thought to make of it, that he should have taken the trouble to shift it to the chair. But even as he laid hold of it, Lanyard dropped the garment in sheer surprise to find it damp and heavy in his grasp, sodden with viscid moisture, and when, in a swift flash of intuition, he examined his fingers, he discovered them discolored with a faint reddish stain. Had the dye run? And how had the American come to dabble the garment in water? To what end? Then, the shape of an object on the floor near his feet arrested Lanyard's questing vision. He stared, incredulous, moved forward, bent over, and picked it up, clipping it gingerly between fingertips. It was one of his razors, a heavy, hollow ground blade, and it was foul with blood. With a low cry, smitten with awful understanding, Lanyard wheeled and stared fearfully at the door communicating with Roddy's room. It stood ajar an inch or two, its splintered lock accounted for by a small but extremely efficient jointed steel jimmy which lay near the threshold. Beyond the door, darkness, silence. Mustering up all his courage, the adventurer strode determinedly into the adjoining room. The first flash of his hand-lamp discovered to him sickening verification of his most dreadful apprehensions. Now he saw why his dressing-gown had been requisitioned, to protect a butcher's clothing. After a moment he returned, shut the door, and set his back against it, as if to bar out that reeking shambles. He was very pale, his face drawn with horror and he was powerfully shaken with nausea. The plot was damnably patent. Roddy proving a menace to the pack and requiring elimination, his murder had been decreed as well as that the blame for it should be laid at Lanyard's door, hence the attempt to drug him, that he might not escape before police could be sent to find him there. He could no longer doubt that de Morbihan had been left behind at the Circle of Friends of Harmony solely to detain him, if need be, and afford Smith time to finish his hideous job and set the trap for the second victim. And the plot had succeeded despite its partial failure, despite the swift reverse chance and Lanyard's cunning had meted out to the pack's agent. It was his dressing gown that was saturate with Roddy's blood, just as they were his gloves, pilfered from his luggage, which had measurably protected the killer's hands and which Lanyard had found in the next room, stripped hastily off and thrown to the floor, twin crumpled wads of blood-stained chamois skin. He now had little choice. He must either flee Paris and trust to his wits to save him, or else seek de Morbihan and solicit his protection, his boasted influence in high quarters. 
but to give himself into the hands to become an associate of one who could be party to so cowardly a crime as this? Lanyard told himself he would sooner pay the guillotine the penalty. Consulting his watch, he found the hour to be no later than half-past four. So swiftly, truly treading upon another's heels, events had moved since the incident of the somnambulist. Since this left at his disposal a fair two hours more of darkness, November nights are long and black in Paris, it would hardly be even moderately light before seven o'clock. But that were a respite none too long for Lanyard's necessity. He must think swiftly in contemplation of instant action were he to extricate himself without the pack's knowledge and consent. Granted, then, he must fly this stricken field of Paris, but how? De Morbihan had promised that Popinot's creatures would guard every outlet, and Lanyard didn't doubt him. An attempt to escape the city by any ordinary channel would be to invite either denunciation to the police on the charge of murder, or one of those fatally expeditious forms of assassination of which the Apaches are past masters. He must and would find another way, but his decision was frightfully hampered by lack of ready money. The few odd francs in his pocket were no store for the war chest demanded by this emergency. True, he had the ombre jewels, but they were not negotiable. Not, at least, in Paris. And the Heisman plans? He pondered briefly the possibility of the Heisman plans. Him fretting, pacing softly to and fro, at each turn he passed his dressing table, and chancing once to observe himself in its mirror, he stopped short, thunderstruck by something he thought to detect in the counterfeit presentment of his countenance, heavy with fatigue as it was, and haggard with contemplation of this appalling contretemps. And instantly, he was back beside the American, studying narrowly the contours of that livid mask. Here, then, was that resemblance which had baffled him, and now that he saw it, he could not deny that it was unflatteringly close. Feature for feature, the face of the murderer reproduced his face, coarsened, perhaps, but recognizably a replica of that Michael Lanyard who confronted him every morning in his shaving glass, almost the only difference residing in the scrubby black moustache that shadowed the American's upper lip. After all, there's nothing wonderful in this. Lanyard's type was not uncommon. He would never have thought of himself a distinguished figure. Before rising, he turned out the pockets of his counterfeit. But this profited him little. The assassin had dressed for action with forethought to evade recognition in event of accident. Lanyard collected only a cheap American watch, in a rolled gold case of a sort of manufactured by wholesale, a briquette, a common key that might fit in any hotel door, a broken paper of Regis cigarettes, an automatic pistol, a few francs and silver, nothing whatever that would serve as a mark of identification. For though the gray clothing was tailor-made, the maker's labels had been ripped out of its pockets, while the man's linen and underwear alike lacked even a laundry's hieroglyphic. With this harvest of nothing for his pains, Lanyard turned again to the washstand in his shaving kit, mixed a stiff lather, stropped another razor to the finest edge he could manage, fetched a pair of keen scissors from his dressing case, and went back to the murderer. He worked rapidly, at a high pitch of excitement, as much through sheer desperation as through any appeal inherent in the scheme, either to his common sense or to his romantic bent. In two minutes, he had stripped the moustache clean away from that stupid, flaccid mask. Unquestionably, the resemblance was now most striking. The American would readily pass for Michael Lanyard. 
This much accomplished, he pursued his preparations in feverish haste. In spite of this, he overlooked no detail. In less than twenty minutes, he had exchanged clothing with the American in detail, even down to shirts, collars, and neckties, had packed in his own pockets the several articles taken from the other, together with the jointed Jimmy and a few of his personal effects, and was ready to bid adieu to himself, to that Michael Lanyard whom Paris knew. The insentient masquerader on the floor had called himself good enough smith he must now serve as good enough lanyard at least for the lone wolf's purposes the police at all events would accept him as such and if the memory of michael lanyard must needs wear the stigma of brutal murder he need not repine in his oblivion since through this perfunctory decease the lone wolf would gain a freedom even greater than before the pack had contrived only to eliminate michael lanyard the amateur of fine paintings remained the lone wolf with not one faculty impaired but rather with a deadlier purpose to shape his occult courses under the influence of his methodical preparations his emotions had cooled appreciably taking on a cast of cold malignant vengefulness he who never in all his criminal record had so much as pulled trigger in self-defence was now ready to shoot to kill with the most cold-blooded intent given one of three targets while Papineau's creatures if they worried him he meant to exterminate with as little compunction as though they were rats in fact as well as in spirit extinguishing the light he stepped quickly to a window and from one edge of its shade looked down into the street he was in time to see a stunted human silhouette detach itself from the shadow of a doorway on the opposite walk move to the curb and wave an arm evidently signaling another sentinel on a corner out of Lanyard's rage of vision. Herein was additional proof, if any lacked, that de Morbihan had not exaggerated the disposition of Popineau. This animal in the street, momentarily revealed by the corner light as he darted across to take position by the door, this animal, with sickly face and pointed chin, with dirty muffler round its chicken neck, shoddy coat clothing its sloping shoulders, baggy corduroy trousers flapping round its bony shanks this was Popineau's, and but one of a thousand differing in no essential save degree of viciousness it wasn't possible to guess how thoroughly Popineau had picketed the house in cooperation with roddy's murder by way of provision against mischance but the adventurer was satisfied that in his proper guises himself he needed only to open that postern door at the street end of the passage to feel a knife slip in between his ribs, most probably in his back, beneath the shoulder blade. He nodded grimly, moved back from the window, and used the flash lamp to light him to the door. End of chapter 10. Recording by Adina Owen.